A person's last words are very significant. How much more so the last words of perhaps the greatest king of Israel, King David. Greatest king other than Jesus, of course. So if you will, turn with me back in your bulletins for a second, and let's look at those words that we heard earlier one more time. We'll only look at the first few verses. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. It's amazing. The last words that David has are God's words. And these are what he says. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Not like today, huh? The sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. King David's last words were about good leadership, godly leadership, leadership that's characterized by justice, goodness, fear of the Lord. And it's like the sun dawning, like the morning light, like rain that causes life to spring up under it. That's what good leadership is like. Godly leadership is a wonderful blessing to those who are blessed to, enough to enjoy it. And that's why God's Word instructs us about what to look for in leaders in the church. That's what our focus will be today. The qualification for elders found in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. So in case you forgot from last week, Paul, the apostle, and Titus, they had traveled through the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, and they had been sharing the gospel. And by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, through Paul's preaching, the gospel, the truth of the gospel, had transformed lives. People had been converted, not just in one place, but in towns throughout the island. And if that wasn't enough, people in multiple places around this city were beginning to become Christians and gather together. But in fact, that wasn't enough. Because Paul transitions from his greeting straight into the reason that he'd actually left Titus behind when he had left Crete. He had left Titus in Crete to do something. So follow along as we read Paul's reason for leaving Titus behind. This is Titus chapter 1, verse 5 to 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, 
for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so why did, why did Paul leave Titus behind? It's, it's very clear. He says right there in verse 5, it was so that Titus would take care of the unfinished business that, that hadn't been done. And what was that? Well, at least part of that was to appoint elders, as Paul had instructed, to appoint leaders in the towns so that Christians would be led by godly men. The main point of these verses here from 5 to 9, then, is this, that churches, both then in Crete and churches today, need to appoint trustworthy teachers. That's the main point of this sermon, appoint trustworthy teachers. Churches need trustworthy teachers. Paul doesn't focus on the process for how to appoint them or ordain these elders, but notice that he says to appoint elders in every town. And so we see already here in this small little island with a a, a newfound Christian group, they needed multiple elders in each of these little towns that they had. So multiple elders are to be appointed in every town in Crete. Every church needs to aspire to have multiple elders or pastors. By God's incredible grace, there must have been conversions all across this island. What an amazing testimony to the power of the gospel that they went from town to town and spread this good news of Jesus, the Savior of the world who came to die for sinners, and people believed it. They turned to Christ in faith. And there at this time were about 20 towns on the island. We're not told if every single, if every single town on the island had believers, but there were at least more than one town that had Christians gathering in churches. It's amazing. In every town that they did have believers, Paul says, appoint elders. The very uh, main point is right there in verse 5, and the rest of our text, 6 through 9, really are just answering the question, how do you find trustworthy teachers for the church? What do you look for? And so, Paul paints a picture sketches what a godly leader looks like, what a faithful leader looks like. In fact, Paul gives us at least 15 characteristics, I'll let you guys add them up yourself, of what a faithful leader looks like. But rather than giving you a 15-point sermon today, thankfully, Paul kind of organizes these into three main categories, and that will be the three points that we consider today. The three places to look, to examine, to determine if someone is a trustworthy teacher and leader is to look at their family, to look at their character, and to test their teaching. So their family, their character, and their teaching. That's going to be 
the three points that we consider today. It's important to make one comment before we dive into our three points to just say specifically that this text here has a particular application and significance to those of us who serve as elders. And so Brian and uh, Shannel, and I'm not sure if Nissen's here today, I know Frank's not, but for us, those of us that serve as elders, this pertains particularly to us. We need to be sobered by this text and consider and examine our lives carefully in light of this and as we strive to make these more and more true in our own lives. But let me encourage the members of Covenant Hope Church. Let me encourage you, pray for us. Pray for the elders. Pray that we would see the characteristics here that we will read about today, that we'll see them more and more in our lives as leaders. That's what we want. That's what we need. But also, members, pray for the gift of more elders for our church. Elders are a gift from the Lord, and they're a blessing. The more, the merrier. It's good for the church to have multiple leaders and teachers that can bless us, that have wisdom and insight and godliness and experience. But ultimately, leaders are meant to be examples to follow. Leaders are meant to be examples, and so everyone here can walk away with something to consider for their own lives, their own following of Christ, as elders are meant to be an example to follow. So as you consider these qualifications here, and as you think about the elders in our church and the ways that we may be uh, reflecting these kinds of characteristics, let me encourage you to imitate them. Make them part of your life and your devotion to the Lord. So let's jump in and consider what do we look for when we look to appoint trustworthy teachers. Number one, family. We see that in verses 5 and 6. The first characteristic that Paul mentions is to be above reproach. If anyone is above reproach. The idea of being above reproach is similar to the idea that's mentioned just in verse 6, that they not be open to the charge of. So to be above reproach is to be above being accused of sins that are mentioned, that are going to be mentioned later in this text. It's to be blameless. Not perfect, of course. No one would be an elder in, in our church if we were looking for perfect men. But men who are above reproach are those that don't have a bad reputation. They aren't known for their sinful characteristics, but they're known for their good character. It's not surprising then that the very first place that Paul looks to identify godly leadership is in their home and amongst their family. Leadership within a family is a key way to see if someone might be a good fit for spiritual leadership in the church. Paul says, and elder candidate must be the husband of one wife. That's kind of a, it seems like a very obvious thing, husband of one wife, but it's quite interesting because neither polygamy, that is having multiple wives, nor divorce and remarriage as flippantly as we see it in many cases in the West today, this wasn't very common in this context. So, it doesn't seem that Paul is speaking against that. No, it seems quite clear that Paul is talking about being faithful to the one wife that we have. 
He's talking about being faithful in marriage, faithfulness to the wife of your youth. In other words, this is a one-woman man. How a man treats his wife reveals a lot about what kind of character that man has, especially about if he can be trusted or not. A faithful track record in marriage is a good sign of faithfulness in other areas of life. And so Paul says to look out for the marriage of a man that you would consider appointing as an elder. Paul moves on from marriage to children, saying his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so a natural question to to ask after reading this is, does this verse require that elders have to have children who are genuinely converted? That's certainly how this translation seems to be putting it. That's certainly one faithful way of translating this sentence. But I think a better translation would be to say that his children are faithful. And so if you look in the ESV, many of your ESV Bibles will have a little footnote. It says, or are faithful. You know, in, for, just for reference to understand why we would be able to change the, the wording in English is because, of course, this is in, written in Greek. And the very same word that was written there that's translated believers is, actually comes up later in our text. So look down in verse 9 for a second. The word trustworthy, the trustworthy word, is the same word that's translated above as believer. And so rather than requiring an elder, elder's children to be believers, something that's entirely outside of an elder's control, it seems like it would be better to understand this as to be saying that they must be faithful. And the, the rest of the sentence explains what does that mean to, to, to be faithful, to have children who are faithful. Well, it's children who aren't open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. The children of elders must not be characterized by immorality and, and, and worldliness in a way that would even shock many secular or non-Christian parents. They must be marked by not disrespecting the authority that God has placed over them in their parents. And so, a potential elder's children should, be, which should follow their father's leadership and instruction, generally speaking. This isn't talking about children, little children who disobey their parents. This is talking about wildness, debauchery, rebelliousness. And so, This is no more than what God expects of every Christian father, in fact, and his children. God wants fathers to lead their families, to lead their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. But men who can't be entrusted, uh, men who, who can't, who fail at leading and shepherding their own little children, can't be entrusted with shepherding God's children in the context of the church. It's important to note that the passage doesn't tell us that an elder has to be married and that he has to have kids because that would even rule out Paul himself. Paul never married and he didn't have children, at, at, at least in the context of the, the passages we have in the Scriptures. But it would even rule out Jesus himself if we required that he be married and have children. And that means to read it that way would to be to say that 
Jesus couldn't even be an elder in your church. That seems obviously not to make sense in the context of this letter or the rest of the Bible. And so, marriage and parenting are helpful signals, helpful training grounds for pastoring in the church and ways that we can see if someone is suitable to lead the church. So let me address the men here. Men, as you aspire to the office of elder, and it is a noble thing to aspire to, I want to encourage you to consider that for yourselves. Let me encourage you to begin by leading well in the spheres of your life that God has already placed you. So if God has given you a wife, care for her well, lead her well, teach her, wash her in the Word, pastor her faithfully. If God's granted you children, you need to lead them to grow, to love God more and more, and to obey Him by following and obeying you. But even if you have neither a wife nor children of your own, you can begin to exercise the pastoral muscles of faithfulness by caring spiritually for the members of the church, members of your household, friends, maybe your housemates. But let me also address wives in the church for a moment. Let me encourage you to encourage your husbands. As your husband strives for faithfulness in the household, both in marriage and parenting, encourage him. Be his chief encourager. Encouragement puts winds into the sails of young leaders. It helps them flourish. Whereas criticism causes men to crumble, causes them to shrivel up. It doesn't help them take steps forward in progressing in trying to lead well. It doesn't mean that you never ever challenge your husband, but it does mean to be slower and more sparing in criticism than encouragement. So as churches look around for godly leaders, Paul points our gaze first to the household, to marriages and to parenting. The home is its ground zero. It's the training grounds for ministry, and therefore it will demonstrate if someone is fit for ministry in the church, the household of God. Verses 7 and 8 shift from family life to an elder's character and conduct more broadly. Elders should be known for their godly character. That's point number two from verses 7 and 8, character. Paul uses another title here for the role of elder that he introduced before. So here in verse 7, do you see he says, an overseer. Elders are overseers, and overseers are elders, meaning that they watch over the church as God's steward, we're told. It's like a household manager taking care of his master's home and being, ensuring that it's being cared for well and protecting it from any who would seek to do it harm. So that word overseer is, is sometimes translated in other versions of the Bible as bishop, but as we see here, it's the same role as an elder. There aren't bishops over multiple churches and then elders over individual churches. No, an elder and a bishop are the same thing. In fact, the Bible uses lots of different words to kind of emphasize different ways pastors or elders or bishops or overseers lead in the church. 
And so an overseer has authority like a, like a manager. He has to watch over the church. But he's also under authority as well. Did you, did you notice that there? An overseer is God's steward. And so pastors don't own the church. God does. That's why it's, it's quite, it's quite uh, unhelpful to talk about churches being belonging to a pastor. Like saying, Brian Park's church or Mark Donald's church. No, they're Christ's church. We should really remember that as we think about other churches and pastors and even our own. Pastors are simply stewards. They're servants. They serve the church, but they serve by leading it. They serve by exercising oversight that's been entrusted to them by God, whose church it is. That's why it's so important that Paul repeats and he stresses that an elder must be above reproach or blameless. When we've been entrusted with authority, leadership, it's essential that that be used well, be used blamelessly. People who wield authority in ungodly ways harm people terribly under their care. And so the rest of verses 7 and 8 fill out, what does it mean to be above reproach as an elder or an overseer? What does it mean to be blameless? And he gives us a list of what elders must not be and then what elders should be. So look at verses 7 and 8. Arrogance, a hot temper, drunkenness, bullying and violence, living for money, all of these rule one out from leading God's church. If you can't trust someone to control their anger, why would you trust them to help you make it to heaven? Why would you entrust your soul to someone who's violent or greedy or any of the other characteristics mentioned here? But sadly, there are many who follow such men. Some obvious examples that many of you will be familiar with are, first of all, prosperity gospel preachers. They're, they're found all over the world, in all kinds of places, and their ministries are huge. They have a huge following. But their whole ministry is built on greed for gain and the promise of gain for those who give to them. And so the whole ministry is, is, thrives through the greed for gain, wanting more and more money. But there are less extreme examples where there's not necessarily a false gospel. Perhaps you're familiar with people who are hot-headed pastors. They're, they're great public speakers, they're charismatic leaders, but they're known to blow up at you if you get on the wrong side of them. Others have disastrous family lives which are overlooked because their ministries are so fruitful. There's so many people present and so many people say they've been changed by it. And maybe they have. But Paul's instructions are clear here. If a man is characterized by sins like these, he is not fit for ministry in any church. He's not fit for any kind of ministry. But avoiding such sins is not all that is required. Paul also highlights positive qualities that need to mark an elder as well. He says, being hospitable, welcoming strangers in, not just doing good, but loving good, a lover of good. 
living righteously, pursuing purity, exercising self-control and discipline. It means that an elder is likely to face lots of temptations, but he needs to be self-controlled and disciplined enough to resist temptation. In other words, elders must have evidence of the fruit of a transformed life. They have to show that they've been transformed by the truth that they're going to preach themselves. Now, at this point, it's, it's important to stop and just think about this. We've just looked at two lists, ones that we must not be, ones that we must be. And, and I would say for some of you, the, the qualities that you've read there seem fairly straightforward. Maybe you're a little surprised at how, uh, how low the bar is, maybe, for being a pastor. You think, you know, don't be violent, don't get drunk, love your wife. It seems pretty straightforward. D.A. Carson comments on the qualifications for pastors, and he says, the list is remarkable for being unremarkable. In other words, there's nothing about superior IQ, charismatic gifts, powerful personalities or the like. The Christian minister is supposed to be gentle, not supposed to get drunk, and so forth. The list is remarkable for being unremarkable. Indeed, with only a few exceptions, all of these qualifications listed here are elsewhere specified in the New Testament and demanded of all Christians. And so, I think it's important to see that they, elders, we're not super Christians or something. No, no, we, we are trying to be faithful to the simple commands that are laid out in Scripture. But having said that, I'm sure that there are others among us here that when they read this list, they feel crushed by the weight of their sin. Maybe some of you have made a shipwreck of your marriage and your family life. Maybe you identify more with the list of things that an elder must not be than what he should be. But praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. These are the qualifications for an elder, not the qualifications for a Christian. The only qualification for a Christian is to be someone who says, yes, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against God. I'm guilty before Him, and I need a Savior. And to know and trust that God has provided one in Jesus Christ. God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. He came to save those who had been unfaithful to their husbands or their wives. To save those who've miserably failed at parenting. To those who are arrogant. To those who are quick-tempered and violent and drunkards and greedy. And the list goes on and on. Jesus came to deliver us from the crushing weight of our sins and the wrath that our sins so righteously and rightly deserve from a God who is holy, holy, holy. Jesus took on flesh. He became like us. He lived perfectly. He never sinned for us. He went to the cross to die in the place of sinners, to pay for our sins in full. And he rose again triumphant from the grave to show he had victory over sin and death. If reading this list leaves you feeling guilty, take that guilt to the cross of Christ where he dealt with it. Turn to him. Trust in Him. Trust in what He's done for you. 
If you're not a Christian, I plead with you to do that today. Turn in faith and repentance to Christ. But brothers and sisters, turning to the Lord and repenting of sin and remembering the grace that's been given us in Christ is is the same step that we need too when we feel guilty for sins like these. It's the first step of God's ongoing process of transforming us to become more and more holy, more and more like this passage describes. We don't need to sit with our sin. We can flee from it to Christ. Like the reformer Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. And so we actually repent our way to righteousness. Having thought about that, are there sins on this list that you feel tempted by or or have given into even this week, let me encourage you, confess them to the Lord. Turn to Him and pray for the grace to resist, to fight. Are there any fruit that's mentioned here that you struggle with? Ask the Lord for His Spirit to bear that fruit in your life by His grace. Having considered a potential elder's family life, And then his character, Paul turns to the central task of an elder. This is our third point, teaching. The task of an elder, teaching. We see this in verse 9, our last verse. One of the most important tasks an elder has is to teach the church. In fact, the majority of the rest of this letter is all about that very theme, the theme of teaching in the context of the church. And verse 9 is basically what Paul does. He, he unpacks giving instruction in sound doctrine and how to rebuke those who contradict it. That's a summary almost of the rest of this letter. It almost goes without saying, though, that in order for someone to teach, you have to know the subject that you're teaching, right? It's not, it's not the kind of job that you can go in and on the job learn it very well. It's difficult. You can't fake it till you make it. And so, for instance, my wife, she's a, she's a Spanish teacher, and I know about three words in Spanish. And so, if she asked me, like, hey, honey, I'm feeling sick today, could you go in and lead my classes today? That would be a great comedy show. I would look like a complete idiot, because I can't teach something I don't know. And that's why Paul begins verse 9 by saying, that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He's one who's been taught something and he has to hold firm to it. And so to be a teacher, first you need a good grip on the subject that you're going to be teaching. And elders need a good grip on the trustworthy word for their own lives and for those under their authority and teaching. Charles Spurgeon described the Puritan John Bunyan in a way that I think should describe every one of us as elders. And even would be a great thing for every Christian to aspire to. He said of Bunyan, Why, this man is a living Bible. If you prick him anywhere, his blood is Bible. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He can't even speak without quoting a text from the Bible, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. Elders, leaders in the church, teachers should bleed Bible. 
Pastors aren't meant to be original and innovative. They're called to pass on what has been taught to us by the apostles and to preach the trustworthy word. That's why our services every week are centered around the scriptures. It's why I say, or Brian says, or whoever else is up here, please open with me in your Bibles to such and such a text. We don't have anything original to say. We're passing on the trustworthy word that's been taught to us. That's why we have our services center around the Word in all that we do together. It's like the sun at the center of our solar system, of our gatherings. We want our worship and our gatherings and our lives and to be Word-centered. Our songs, our prayers, our readings from God's Word. And central to the Word of God, central to the Scriptures, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our aim here as elders at Covenant Hope, is to have our church and our lives center around God's Word. And so the task of elders is to teach, and His tool is the trustworthy Word. Ask any teacher, and they'll agree with me, that teaching has two important elements, instruction and correction. Instruction and correction, and we see that in verse nine at the end, after those two important words, so that. This gives us the purpose. Why does an elder need to have a firm grasp on the trustworthy word? It's to instruct and to rebuke or to correct. Elders who know the truth and hold on to it closely should also use their, their teaching to encourage and strengthen members that's sound with, with doctrine and teaching that's sound and builds up. Now, when it says sound doctrine here, it's not talking about systematic theology, which is often how we use the word doctrine. In fact, you could just say healthy teaching, teaching that comforts, teaching that leads and guides people to grow in their faith in Christ. And so in identifying leaders, we need to see if they're able to handle the word well, if they're able to apply it to other people's lives. And that doesn't just happen here on Sundays from the pulpit. But the gift of teaching comes in many varieties. It comes in many packages. Praise God that this requirement doesn't mean that you have to be able to preach a captivating 45-minute sermon every week. Otherwise, I'd be in deep trouble. Praise God that we can teach one another in lots of different settings. It can happen in group of members sitting around a coffee table with their Bibles open in their laps. It can happen in a one-to-one conversation following the service today as you exit the hall or stick around for 15 minutes. Ask questions about what in the text you noticed or stuck out to you, what the Lord taught you. It can happen in a structured way like a, a book study or a Bible study. Or it can simply happen through sharing what God's been teaching you as you've been reading the Word throughout the week. If you want to grow in being able to teach, though, there's one especially important training ground that I would encourage all of you to consider, and that's Covenant Hope Kids. When the children's ministry starts back up, I want to encourage you to consider teaching God's Word in that context. It's a great place to learn about how to teach God's Word, and so if you don't have children of your own, consider doing it preparing for if the Lord blesses you with children one day. But Paul says that elders must not only be able to give instruction, they must also be able to rebuke and correct those who contradict 
sound doctrine or healthy teaching. And we see that at the very end of verse 9. This was a particular challenge for Titus, and we're going to see that as we read the rest of the letter. As he ministered on this island of Crete and went from church to church, we'll see that there were also false teachers that were also there. They're they're described in the very next verses of the text, verses 10 to 16. So when we jump back into Titus in a few months' time, that's where we'll be. Men disputed the truth that had been passed down from Jesus to the apostles and the apostles to Titus and had been passed on. And so that's why church, churches need trustworthy teachers and elders. It's not only to give good instruction, but it's also to protect the flock from false teachings which were being spread and are even being spread today. False teaching that upsets the faith of many. And so elders don't go seeking controversy, but they must be willing and able to patiently but firmly show the error of those who teach false doctrine. One commentator says it it, it, this way, he says, it is the job of a good shepherd not only to feed the sheep, but also to drive away the wolves. So as long as we're waiting for Christ, our good shepherd, to come, we'll need under-shepherds to protect the flock from being deceived and led astray by false teaching. And that's why Paul prioritizes installing elders in every church. That's why he front-loads that at the beginning of this letter and says, Titus, what you need to do is appoint elders, appoint teachers, men who are trustworthy, men who will teach the truth. This is foundational to the health and life of a church, is to have trustworthy teachers. Elders have a lot of other duties as they lead God's people, but Paul focuses here on their ability to teach by instructing and correcting from God's Word. Churches need trustworthy teachers. Every church needs godly elders who can model godliness and can promote it through their teaching, even towards those who disagree with them. Of course, the Lord Jesus Himself embodies every one of these qualities perfectly. Everything that should mark an elder was perfectly lived out by Jesus. Jesus loved His bride and was faithful to her, even though she was unfaithful to Him. And he was faithful even to the point of death. Jesus produces faithfulness in his family, in his family members. He was utterly blameless in all that he did. Jesus welcomes wandering sinners in and loves them. Jesus loves righteousness. Jesus was upright and holy. And he teaches us to follow him, to turn away from the lies and deceitfulness of sin and to come to him. Every elder in your church, every elder in this church, every elder in any church is an imperfect reflection of their Savior. And every elder, even the best ones, are what they are because of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Praise God for the elders that He's given to Covenant Hope. Pray for us as elders. Pray that we'd be mastered by God's Word as we seek to grasp firmly to it and to teach it faithfully. And men, I hope that this vision inspires you to even consider aspiring to this role in our church. It is a noble task. But for all of us, let's be seeking to be teachable as we sit under the Word of God. 
Let's listen carefully to the instruction that we hear and be willing to be corrected or rebuked by it. And let me conclude with the words of the author of Hebrews. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of godly leaders. And Lord, we pray that you'd grow our elders more and more in godliness. We pray that we would all flourish as a body. Bless our church with the gift of even more elders. Elders who will model and teach and build up the members through such men. All for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.